Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. I'm just truly thankful that we are learning and continuing to learn how to be a church that prays together. Thank you for that sweet time of prayer. I think the power is all in prayer, amen. Um, and so, um, yeah, I was reading some stuff earlier this week, and it's funny, man. My appetite says, be sensuous and enjoy yourself. <laughs> Education says, be resourceful and expand yourself. Materialism says, be satisfied and please yourself. Psychology says, be confident and fulfill yourself. Pride says, be superior and promote yourself. Humanism says, be capable, believe in yourself. Yet God says, be wise and humble yourself. Some are so proud they resonate with that old country song, Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Perhaps the song should have been, Oh, Lord, it's hard to be prideful because I'm flawed in every way. For sure, the Lord says that pride is what leads to our downfall, and you know this to be true. If we exalt ourselves, the Lord will humble us. Remember, a teacher was giving a lesson on the circulation of blood throughout the body, and so she said, now class, if I stood on my head, the blood, you know, would run into my head, and my face would turn red. The class said, well, yes, teacher, we we know that. And then she said, well, then why is it that while I'm standing upright in an ordinary position, the blood doesn't run to my feet, and my feet turn red? One little fella just chimed in, and he said, well, teacher, it's probably because your feet ain't empty. You'll you'll think about that and get it in a minute. You can humble yourself, or you can be humbled by other people, and sometimes they do it wrongly, sometimes they do it rightly. Rightly. Here's what I do know, that the Corinthian church was incredibly prideful, and they needed humbling. They were boasting, they were arrogant, and they thought they had arrived spiritually. And because of that, there was this incredible division, there was factions, there were groups continuing to form, and people putting one person up against another It was not healthy, nor was it Christ-like, and so Paul therefore addresses their pride. He tells them what I'm going to reference is our sermon in a sentence. I haven't done that in a while, so I thought I'd bring that oldie but goodie back. It's retro day. Sermon in a sentence, Paul would say it like this, that pride, uh, prevent pride by practicing humility. Prevent pride by practicing humility. And in our text this morning, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 13, we're going to see three ways to prevent pride and three ways to practice humility. 
So again, out of honoring of the reading of God's word, I wonder if you would stand yet again with me as we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. Our Lord's word says these words. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. Why, Paul? So that. So that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, and so that none of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You've become rich. You've become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you, you're strong. You're distinguished, and we're without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless, and we toil working with our hands, and when we are reviled, we bless When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. You may be seated, and may God bless his word. First thing that Paul says is really just kind of this big idea. He says, prevent pride in your life. Prevent pride in your life. I can remember when I was first being called into the ministry, I had a pastor who taught me this simple phrase that has been with me for now these 28 years of ministry. We're in his office and he told me, he says, hey, look around and I want you to find a book that you don't think has been used or would be useful to me. Or after finding one, he said these words to me. He said, Steve, I want you to know that pride will put you on the bookshelf of ministry quicker than anything else. If you want to be used and you want to be useful to the king, do everything you can to prevent pride in your life. Paul's kind of making the same kind of an argument. He's making the idea that we have to prevent pride in our life. So how do we do that? Well, he first of all says, don't blow on about who you are. Don't blow on about who you are. Look in verse 6. He says, now these things, brethren, well, what things? Well, he's going to tell us. I have figuratively applied to myself an Apollos for your sake, so that in us you might learn to exceed what is written, and so that none of you will become, there's the word, arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Paul says, these things I've applied to myself. The word applied is made up of two words, one which gives us our word scheme, which means the pattern of things, And then he adds a prefix to it, which is the word meta, meta schemata. It indicates a change or an exchange. What Paul is saying is, is I'm taking the things that I've mentioned earlier, and I'm going to show you a pattern of things in my life, and I want you to learn from it and exchange your behavior for what looks like in my life. 
What things, though? What are these things? Well, he tells us that he tells us what he's talking about because he says, I've applied them figuratively. Well, what figures has he been mentioning? Well, up in chapter three, he talked about being farmers. And then and later in chapter three, he talked about being builders. And then last week, he talked about these servant stewards, these galley rowers, if you will. These figures of speech, Paul says, these things, I'm applying them to myself so that you would learn something. First, he says, I want you to learn not to go beyond what is written. Church, I'm going to tell you, man, if you want to pray a prayer over your life, that would be a great thing to pray. God, may my life never go beyond what's written in your word. If you will remember, they were dividing into groups. Some were exalting Apollo, some exalting Peter, some putting Paul above everyone else. They had been giving honor to their preferred leader in deeply boastful and prideful ways. Now, it is true that the Bible says that we should honor our leaders. In several places, it says this. For example, one of them is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 12 through 13. It says these words, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. It's true, that should happen. But when loving gratitude and honor are contaminated with pride and conceit, the body will suffer. What God meant for unity, those things of honoring leaders, now Satan has turned into division. They had gone beyond what scripture had said in honoring them because now they were doing it in a very prideful way. Their admiration had reached to this extent that now they were forming groups around who was the best one. This was due to their pride and it was going beyond what was written. And this led to, in the latter part of verse 6, it led to that they would become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. The word arrogant is, means to exalt yourself, to completely look down on somebody else, but it literally means to puff up or to blow something up, to inflate something like you would a balloon. Paul teaches them that they can prevent pride by not blowing on about themselves continually lifting themselves up against other people, constantly filling the room with the hot air about themselves. Pride often exerts itself by blowing on about itself or tearing or putting other people down. Often we may not be able to say much good about ourselves, but we certainly can blow on by putting others down, tearing them down, evaluating their faults. If we're going to blow on about something, let's prevent pride and do this. Ephesians 4.29 says, if we're going to blow on, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. But such a word is as good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. If we're going to blow on, let's blow on like that, amen. But let's not blow on about who we are. Then he says to prevent pride, he says, don't boast about what you have. Not only don't blow on about who you are, but don't boast about what you have. In verse 7, he says these words, who regards you as superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast 
as if you had not received it. Now, here's the truth, and you know this as well as I do, that those who are prideful and arrogant can't keep it to themselves. They have to brag. They have to boast. A prideful person has to brag about how good he or she is, what she or he has, or what they have done. They were thinking, the Corinthians were thinking they were superior. So Paul says, who regards you as superior? The implication is that if you are better in any way, it would have been God who did that, and you can't take the credit for it. Do you think that you're above other believers? Is that kind of the question he's really saying? Do you you really believe that you're better than anyone else? Is your group that you have formed, is it better than another group? There's nothing, absolutely nothing Paul says to boast about. They believed they were self-made. They were responsible. They thought they were responsible for everything that they had. They were not remembering that everything that we have has been given to us by God. So then Paul says, and if you did receive it, why do you pretend that you didn't? Why do you boast as if you are not the recipients of God's grace? They were treating everything they had with arrogance as though everything they had was, was the result of their own personal achievement. And that's what pride does. That's what boasting does. If you have been given a good mind, if you have a good job, if you have abilities, if you've been given good looks or good talents, can I just be honest with you? At the end of the day, you really didn't have a lot to do with that. That was how God designed you and created you. Many times we truly believe that our talents, our skills, and our gifts came of ourselves. But in the end, who gave you the opportunity to do whatever it is that you've done? Who put you in the position to do that? Who put you in this country to have that ability? God could have designed it very differently, but they thought they were special and that they could take credit for their giftings. It was like they had earned all this, they had created it, and they had caused it. But to prevent pride, we must not boast about what we have. Instead, we should be the most thankful and grateful people on the planet. John gives us some good advice in John chapter 3, verses 27 and 30, when John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. And then he says, he must increase and I must decrease. Don't blow on about who you are. Don't boast about what you have. And then thirdly, he says, don't believe what's not true. Don't believe what's not true. Verse 8, he says, you are already filled. You've become rich. You've become kings without us. And indeed, I wish you'd become kings so that we might also reign with you. Now, here's something that's interesting. You can tell when Paul does this in his writings because he starts to change his language a little bit. And what we pick up here is this is what I call some sanctified sarcasm. Paul's going on the, the offensive here because he, he's saying, I don't think you're really getting what I have to say. So he's going to change his rhetoric and he's going to change the technique by which he speaks to them. He's going to start speaking to them like they believe so that then he can tie the knot. This means, he says, you are already filled. He doesn't think that they're filled, but that's what they believe. You guys are already filled. It means to, to be completely satisfied, to satiate something. 
They believed that they were totally satisfied. They believed that they were exactly where they wanted to be spiritually. They were satisfied with their spiritual condition. They believed that they were rich, that they were kings, that they were at the top, that they didn't lack anything, that they were actually ruling spiritually. Paul again says in sarcasm, well, I sure wish that was true. I wish it was coronation time because at coronation time, you would see that Jesus said that we as apostles would be ruling and not you. So since that hasn't happened, I know you're not reigning because I'm not reigning. And it's not about me reigning. It's about Jesus reigning. The truth was they, were, they weren't reigning because Jesus hasn't established his kingdom on earth as of yet. So it's all pride. So how does that apply to you and me? Because I believe that's important. Well, often God does something in us or through us, and we think we have arrived spiritually. I mean, look at me. I'm doing this now. I'm leading this ministry. I've arrived here because I've been given this opportunity. But you know this to be true. You've heard it said your entire Christian life. You and I will never arrive spiritually this side of heaven. There's always a deep work to do in our lives. Did you know that this pastor has deep, deep work that Jesus still needs to do in my life? Sometimes, listen very carefully, sometimes we can confuse giftedness with godliness. Sometimes we confuse giftedness with godliness. Many think that because we have a ministry or because we're doing something to help people or because what we're doing is making more of an impact on people's lives than what somebody else is doing, we may believe that we're good spiritually. But giftedness is not the same as godliness because the Bible tells me over and over and over again of how God used some gifted people who were deeply sinful. We're going to prevent pride. We can't believe things that aren't true. You and I have not arrived. We can't believe that we will arrive this side of heaven. I remember reading a story about King Canute who ruled over Denmark, Norway, and England more than a thousand years ago. King Canute was a wise ruler. He worked diligently to make the lives of his subjects better. And as often the case, he was surrounded by those who sought to gain influence and prominence with him. And according to the ancient story, he grew tired of the way they tried to flatter him to gain his influence. So he ordered that his throne be carried out to the seashore and everybody in his court gather at the seashore with him. By the sea, sitting on his throne, the king commanded that the tide not come in. Yet soon the waters were lapping around his legs and the tide did not listen to his command. According to one of his historians that, that read, was keeping count of the story, King Canute at that point rose up from his throne and said these words, let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings. For there is none worthy of that name, but only one. And he is the one who is from heaven, and he is the one that the earth and the sea obey by his eternal laws. That's the King Jesus. See, to prevent pride, you can't blow on about who you are. 
You can't boast about what you have and you can't believe things that aren't true. But then Paul says this, not only do you prevent pride, but then you have to practice humility. So then he says this, practice humility in your life. See, Paul has confronted them about their false belief of being rich, about reigning as these spiritual kings. And now he brings them into reality and reminds them of the life of a Jesus follower looks very different than what you think you're experiencing. It's not the the life that belongs to the prideful. It's the life that belongs to those who are deeply humble. So he tells them this, listen, if you're going to practice humility, you're going to have to do it by living as a spectacle to this world. Living as a spectacle to this world. He says there in verse 9, he says, I think God has exhibited us as apostles last of all. Men condemned to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. You see, God the Father allowed Jesus to be crucified where he was made a spectacle to the world. Now God has exhibited or put on display his apostles just like that as a spectacle. Men condemned to the same kind of death. This world, these words here of of being, this idea of where you find there, where he says exhibited us as men condemned to death and become a spectacle to the world is language that Paul has used from the world of gladiators, from the world of the Roman games. But more specifically, it's how it got started because when a Roman general won a major victory, It was celebrated by what was called a triumph. The general would enter the city in all his military splendor, and his officers and his troops would be following him very closely. But then directly behind them would come all the prisoners of war, and they would be in chains. And the conquered king and his officers would be clearly displayed for everybody to see and to mock The prisoners were under death sentence and they would be taken directly into the arena to where they would have to fight with wild beasts. That was what was called the spectacle. And Paul says, we have become a spectacle like that. Men condemned to death whom the world will mock knowing that we face a sure and sudden death in this world. It was a place of public viewing. It's almost as if God intended the apostles to come in last like the doomed gladiators in the fight. To the world, they deserved death because they weren't teaching or doing anything to help anybody in any way. Thus, they were condemned to die as criminals. They were ridiculed, spit upon, imprisoned, beaten, mocked. They were indeed last, but in the coming kingdom, they would be first. Beloved, Christ has said in Luke 9, 23, And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Practicing humility means living as a spectacle. Living as one whose life is in public view. When they look at you and they look at me, They need to see those who are continually dying to themselves, continually putting others first, putting our own preferences aside, even though it costs us deeply. That's what the world needs to see. And it requires deep humility to live that way. 
Live, Paul says, as a spectacle. Then he says, live as a sufferer in this world. Live as a sufferer. Verse 10. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. The Corinthians thought, listen, that ministers of the gospel were foolish and that the gospel itself was foolish. If you remember in chapter 1, they were ashamed of being associated with or even being called a servant of Christ. These Corinthians wanted glory and honor and recognition. They wanted human wisdom. They thought of themselves as prudent. Well, that's very interesting that Paul says they thought that they were prudent in Christ because prudent is a form of the word wisdom, but it's not the word that Paul has been using. It's a word that means to become wise through my thinking. Again, Paul uses sarcasm and says, you think we are fools, but really you guys are the ones you think that are really wise. You guys think that we are weak, but it's really we're the ones who are strong, but you think that you're strong. He says there, it's interesting that the word there, he says, but we are weak. That word weak means to be sick and weakly. It's usually used with the thing that we find when somebody is deeply sick, when they have a grave illness, they become that weak. The Corinthians thought that the apostles were just these sick and weakly people. And in comparison, they were so strong. The sarcasm continues. He says, you guys are distinguished. That, that is an interesting word. It's the word for glory with a prefix attached to it to mean to be in. In other words, Paul just said, you guys think that you're in the glory. You guys think that you're, you're it. But, but we as apostles, he says, but we're without honor. And that's an interesting word there too, because it's, it's a word that means precious, but with a negative prefix on it, which denies everything that, that comes after it. So in other words, you guys think that you're in the glory, but we really are anything but precious. We're despicable. We're despised. We're without honor. Moving away from the sarcasm, and in case they weren't getting the point, Paul then tells of a, a reality that's really the, the truth. Not only will it mean being fools for Christ and seeming weak and, and being dishonored, but verse 11 he says, to this present hour we're both hungry and thirsty. We're poorly clothed and roughly treated and we are homeless. In other words, living as a Christ follower often means going without. It will mean literally sometimes having to give our food to someone else so that they won't be hungry. Giving a, our what we have to satisfy our thirst to others so that they won't go without water. It oftentimes means that we will have to live in the same clothes we've always lived in or even go without clothing. It means being roughly treated being even without a home, Jesus had no place to even lay his head. If we're going to follow him, that's probably what the typical Christian's life will look like. It requires deep humility to live that way. And then he says in verse 12, and we toil, working with our hands, 
Wow. That word toil means to work copiously. We, we read that before. The life of a humble Christ follower often required doing things others will consider offensive. In the Corinthian mind, working with your hands was what slaves did. No good Christian would ever do manual work that slaves do. It was demeaning, and that's Paul's point. We have to practice humility and serve in ways that are often demeaning because that's what it means to be a Christ follower. We have to practice that kind of humility and serve people. But then Paul adds some very tough things. I think for the most part, all of us are like, "Mm, that's kind of some stuff I'm not really sure about. Tell me something that's going to apply to my life. Well, Paul, thank you, because then he says, when we are reviled, we bless. Now he's going to meddling, right? Now, Now he's like, okay. This means to abuse somebody with my words, to speak evil of them. Paul says, when you guys and when others are speaking evil of me, my response is, is that I bless. Now, this is interesting. Work with me here, church. This literally means to give a eulogy. So what Paul is saying in some way, in my mind's eye, he says this. This is my paraphrase and Steve Brown's paraphrase only. He says, when they kill us with their words, we're the ones to give up and give a eulogy, but we don't speak about ourselves. We speak about how good they are. And they're the ones that killed us. When they speak evil, we're supposed to say nothing but good about them. Talk about humility. And then he says, when we're persecuted, we endure. You know what persecution is, but let me tell you what the word endure means. The word endure is a word that means again. It means to to have, I'm sorry, it means to have. And then it has a preposition in front of it, which means again. So in other words, to endure is to have something again and again and again and again. We have to go through something over and over and over and over and over again. And that's what it means to be a believer is you will be persecuted over and over and over again. You will have to endure. People are going to punish you. This country will eventually make laws to where it will be offensive to do what I'm doing right now. They're going to mistreat you as a believer. Your employer may not give you the promotions simply because you are a believer. You're going to have to endure this over and over and over again. Paul says then in verse 13, then he says, but then when we're slandered, we try to conciliate. Followers of Christ, people are going to say false things about you. They're going to lie about you. And they're going to slander you. And what that word means is really to try and sway somebody else's opinion about you. People are going to do that in this life. And Paul says when they try to convince others that you're really bad or they try to convince others that you're really trying to do things that aren't true or you're not living according to the word or your theology is really jacked. And when they begin to do that kind of thing to you, 
Paul says when they slander, we try to conciliate. What does that mean, Paul? It means to cause to be encouraged or consoled. Again, I find it interesting that when others try to kill us with their words, we're to give a eulogy and honor them. (laughs) And then here he says, when we're persecuted, we endure, but when we're slandered, we try to conciliate. In other words, when others are causing me much pain by what they're lying about with me, I'm to be the one to try to comfort pain in their life. Wow. You talk about humility. But you know who Paul is really pointing people to, don't you? Think about Jesus. When he was spoken evil of, what did he do? When he was reviled, he blessed. When he was slandered, he chose to be concerned about others even as they were crucifying him. Christ was persecuted and endured it over and over and over again. Christ worked with his hands and did lowly things like wash people's feet, touch lepers, ate with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was often hungry and thirsty and didn't have a place to lay his head. And to be, humble like, uh, to be humble like Jesus, Paul is saying this, if I'm going to be humble like Jesus, I have to also suffer like Jesus. Sounds like I've got a lot to practice. How about you? To practice humility, live as a spectacle and a suffer. And lastly, very quickly, he says, then you've got to be willing to live as scum of this world. You've got to be willing to live as scum in this world. You see, the Corinthians saw themselves on top that the apostles saw themselves on the bottom. He says they have become scum of the world and dregs of all things. Scum comes from a word that means to cleanse with a preposition in front of it meaning around, to cleanse around something. It describes the filth that's left in a bowl or something that's left around it. And the scum is what's left when you scrape or clean away all of the scum, all that stuff that's around it. What's left when you discard it, when you throw it away, that's the scum that you're getting rid of. And then he says we become dregs. That, that comes from a word that means to rub away and the same idea, the prefix around. It refers to anything that would be left over in a bath and then would vigorously be wiped or rubbed away, getting rid of whatever it was that was defiling what was inside of it. In other words, Paul is saying, the world doesn't see that we're adding anything to it. It thinks that we're defiling it. And they want to get rid of us as quickly as they can. We're the problem. We've got to get rid of these guys. True is that in our culture today. These words were used often of the lowest degraded criminals when they were being marched to their execution. Hey, there goes the scum. Look at these scum. There they go. You and I use it too, don't we? I mean, if somebody does something that offends us, you scum, you scuzz bucket. We have all kinds of interesting words. The world's going to see how we live for Christ and they will be offended by our standards of purity. 
They'll be offended by our holiness, by our righteousness, and they will call us scum. If you don't believe it, just pay attention to what's happening at the Supreme Court over this abortion debate and see what people are calling Christians who want to defend the right of the unborn. Be okay with it. Be okay with being called scum for Jesus. Paul says in verse 11, he says, up until this present hour, and here in verse 13, he, he ends by saying, even until now. This is to be the constant practice of the Christian. We're spectacles and we suffer and we, we have to be seen as scum. And, and again, I want to point you to who Paul is really referencing because we're to have this mindset because in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, the Bible says this, have this attitude. In other words, continually be in this even until now. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, even though, listen, Corinthians, he was the king. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he, he didn't feel himself or blow on about himself. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. He, he worked with his hands. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. How, Paul? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The glory of God the Father. Listen to me. Here's what I want to tell you. You can exalt yourself and have God humble you. Or you can humble yourself and surely God will exalt you. 1 Peter 5, 6 says this, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. You know, a truly humble man is hard to find. A truly humble woman is hard to find. But God delights to honor such selfish people. Booker T. Washington, the renowned black educator, was an outstanding example of humility. Shortly after he took over the presidency of the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, he was walking in an exclusive section of town when he was stopped by a wealthy white woman. Not knowing the famous Mr. Washington by sight, she asked Mr. Washington if he would like to earn a few dollars by chopping wood for her. Because he had no pressing business at the moment, Professor Washington smiled, he rolled up his sleeves, and proceeded to do the humble chore she had requested. When he was finished, he carried logs into her house and stacked them by her fireplace. And a little girl then recognized him and later revealed his identity to the woman. The next morning, the embarrassed woman went to see Mr. Washington in his office at the school. And she apologized profusely. And Washington said this. He said, it's perfectly all right, ma'am. Occasionally, I enjoy doing manual labor. And besides that, it's always a delight to do something for a friend. She took his arm and warmly assured him that his meek and gracious attitude had endeared him and his work to her heart. And not long after, she got together with her wealthy friends and they donated thousands of dollars to the Tuskegee Institute. What am I trying to tell you, church? If you're going to prevent pride, 
you've got to practice humility. Jeremy, if you and your team would come. I remember being at the altar one day. Not here at this church, but in another church. And I remember a man came to one of our deacons, like we have here, that come to the altar, and he, I overheard him say this to this deacon. He said, Brother, would you please pray for me that I'll remain humble? I thought that was a great thing to ask. Then this deacon said something that I I don't think I'll really ever forget. He said, young man, I would pray for you to remain humble, but I have to ask you something. What do you have to be proud about? What do you have to be proud about? What do we really have to be prideful about? Everything that we have, everything that we enjoy in this life has been given us by God. The only thing that we could ever be boastful about would be Jesus. I'd say instead of being prideful, we have a lot to be thankful for. As we begin to close this service today, I want to ask you to think about a couple of things and then I'll pray and we'll respond. But maybe this is something that maybe the Lord would use to impress upon your heart about what to do with this message. But if someone were really truly to describe you today, would they use the word prideful or would they use the word humble? When you see others in sin, do you think you're better than they are? What comes out of your mouth when you're being reviled? When you're being persecuted? When you're being slandered? Because I can tell you that this week in my study, I've had to do a whole lot of repenting. The Lord's taken this word and applied it to my life. I've got, I've got some phone calls that I have to make. I've already made some. I've had to send a few texts to some people. The Lord's deeply working in my heart. That There's been an encounter in the community that I had a couple of weeks ago with an individual. And I didn't say something and I should have said something. What about you? What would you say that is your current practice? Is it pride or humility? Well, can I say lastly to you that pride is something that will definitely keep you from Jesus? And there's really only one reason that somebody wouldn't give their life to Jesus. And that's because of pride. And there's really only one reason we don't ever pray. It's because of pride. If you're here within the sound of my voice today and 
you've heard this message about how Jesus loves us, that God created us to walk with him, to be with him in the garden and to spend forever with him, but yet we chose to rebel against God and we sinned against God. Because of that, God had to put us out of his presence and forever we shall be. And we began to die physically because we couldn't get back into what God had given to us to eat. And here we are today, we're continuing to rebel against God and we're dying physically, we're dead spiritually and we're forever separated from God. But God so loved us that he sent Jesus. That Jesus would die because the wages of sin is death. So Jesus would die so that we don't have to continue to die physically. There's coming a day when that will happen. But also Jesus came to die to be the sacrifice to to fix us spiritually, to bring us alive spiritually so that we could go to be with God, so that we could have communion with God because both physical and spiritual death were the result of our fall. But God doesn't want us to stay that way. He said, Jesus, to fix that for us. And all we have to do is just humble ourselves, say that we have sinned against God, call out on His mercy, And say, Lord, I am no longer going to be king of my life. I want you to be. And the only thing today that would keep you from that is your pride. Would you humble yourself and receive him? Would you humble yourself and really maybe even deal with your own sin today about pride? Would you stand to your feet? I'm going to pray. And you come as the Lord leads. Jesus, would you speak to our hearts today because, Lord, I know you want to use us. You want to bless us. So purge our pride that we may be humbly used. In your name we pray. Amen.